Hello everyone, this is Sakib welcoming you to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Uh, we have uh, the return of Ravi Uba, a very known voice on tennis Twitter and also a freelance broadcaster writer in the tennis capacity. So let's bring Ravi right in. Hey Ravi, how are you? Hey Sakib, I'm doing well and uh, I'm doing very, very good and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we uh, had you exactly, I think, in the same time frame after the Open and before the uh, the Asian swing. So I guess this is becoming, uh, hopefully it's becoming an annual thing, you know. <laughs> sure. We can call it a tradition. Yeah. Uh, so I know we've been in talks to have this podcast for quite some time and uh, we'll use the build-up that you spent covering the U.S. Hardcore series up to the Open. But uh, before that, let's talk about Kim Kleister. I mean, it's a very, it's a fairly new story. Uh, the news broke yesterday. Uh, so talk about that. I mean, uh, from the prism of you know how tennis has gotten older. Maybe this is uh, somewhat inspirational to Kim to come back and uh, what the expectations are uh, at this stage, if there are any. Well, the thing is, uh, you know, we wait to see how many, you know, how many tournaments Kim is going to come back playing uh, when she does start playing again. Uh, it could be a pretty, pretty limited schedule, but obviously this is it's great news. I mean, when you have a player like Kleister, the multiple Grand Slam winner, you know, deciding to come back, obviously she feels like she has something to give in the game. I don't think she's doing it just to show up and and, and play matches, play around here or there. Um, I'm interested to, to see when she does come back onto the tour how that movement is going to be because we think of the movement, or for me, the first thing I think about when I think of Kleister's is her phenomenal court coverage and her, you remember doing the splits? On court, we mm-hmm. saw that many times. <laughs> so her flexibility was uh, was tremendous. And you combine that with a, with a power. Uh, somebody who was able to play well on all surfaces. She had that tremendous rivalry with um, with Justine. They had, you know, they played a couple of epic matches, including in Grand Slam finals. Um, and actually, you know, I interviewed Kim uh, at Wimbledon uh, doing um, a print slash online story or just talking about Wimbledon. It was it was the usual stuff we were, we were chatting about. And first of all, she's. She remains so, so nice, uh, such a great, great person. Um, everybody had said that previously, and that hasn't changed. Um, but, uh, you know, there would have been no inkling from, from me at that point that she would, would have wanted to uh, to come back, although you could see that, you know, fitness-wise, um, she, she could. She could do it. So um, I'm very, very excited to have her back, and I put something out on Twitter. You can you can just see it now. Can't you suck at the first round of the Australian Open, uh, <laughs> her yeah. getting drunk? Serena, that be that might be something. What would be a heck of a match? Yeah, that would definitely uh, be something. And, uh, and 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 you're right. I mean, uh, uh, movement is key. And uh, she what last played seven years ago, so it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see. But uh, again, this, this this kind of decision is just not made in haste. She must have hit some balls and probably a lot of balls, and then must have talked to the people who are close. And this is what she wanted to do. So it should be fun. And she's still younger than Serena and Roger. I mean, uh, yeah. that's. Uh, so that's going to be uh, definitely one of the big stories to watch. So another think, story to sorry. I think, I think also just a, one more thing to add about that is you know we there there are advances not only in the game but outside the game. So talking about inside the game, you know we all talk about the recovery elements and, and the sports science, um, the nutrition. All that has been advanced in, in recent years. That's something that helps older players. And number two, the, the fact that you know she does have kids. Um, I believe three kids Kim does have, and we all can re- remember Jada when she won the U.S. Open so, so small, and she was just so beautiful to watch during the trophy presentation after Kim won the U.S. Open. Uh, kids are a bit older now, but for, in terms of daycare and um, facilities for, for moms um, out on the tour, and also for dads, you would say, um, having kids, I think that's gotten a lot better. So that's that's something I think that would have factored in also. Yeah, I think the longevity of the of both tours, uh, you know, factoring family and, uh, I mean, the numbers don't lie, like you said, so it's, it's definitely a possibility, but it just remains a fascinating point, none so ever that after seven years, a top player will come back. So yeah, tennis is, uh, going to be more exciting with the addition of Kleisters. So let's talk yeah. about, uh, Andy Murray, not a comeback, but, uh, he's definitely packing his schedule in Asia. So it's definitely more geared towards singles after playing the doubles in New York. Uh, what is a British press coverage that's not meeting the eye at the world scene? I mean, how is this coverage there and uh, what are the expectations? Any news? That, is he timing the ball better? I know he played a challenger in Mallorca when US Open was going on. So it looks like he's uh, back on a full schedule for the Asian swing. I think, I think uh, Sakib, the, the best way to, to answer that is to say that it's just really um, a wait and see. I mean, 
we were here, um, you know, six, seven months ago, thinking that his career, his career was going to be over at the Australian Open. I uh, played that match against RBA, tremendous match to watch. And then, you know, after that match, he thought, okay, you know, there, there could still be something. Um, you know, obviously, he went that went, underwent that procedure to kind of save his career, you could say, for a second time. Came back, fairy tale doubles at Queens. Um, you know, that, that, that match, the loss that he had to um, Matteo Viola in Mallorca, I don't think it would have hurt him in terms of just the, the result. He's coming out of that um, gauging his body. How is his body feeling? And only he is going to know how he is feeling. The fact that he's kind of loading up his schedule playing in Asia because Shanghai is not the only event he's going to play, that can only be a good thing. So on the outset, I think it can only be a good thing. Second of all, though, I just wonder is if this is kind of a test for Andy, testing himself to think, okay, to say – I'm going to be playing these tournaments. I'm going to see how it's going to go. And then we assess going to 2020, what is going to happen? Um, is this going to continue? Is he going to continue to play? Can he continue to play singles? Is he going to just stick to doubles and then hope to, to work himself into the singles and hope that his, his body just starts to progress a bit faster? Uh, or not really progress a bit faster, but just make the usual amends after having the procedure, just start to feel better after a certain time. So I think it's um, it's obviously a good sign he's playing in, in Asia. Um, but then the back of the Asian swing, when it's done, I think we're going to have a much better idea as to what 2020 is going to look like for Murray, whether, again, he's going to be playing more singles, whether he's going to be playing doubles, or hopefully not this scenario, the fact that he's going to stop playing. Uh, another thing just to factor in, is it is an Olympic year, and for Murray, obviously, winning those two back to back on the men's side um, in singles, um, you know, that's something that might be in the back of his mind. Uh, maybe, maybe not, because obviously he's still really in the preliminary steps of coming back. So um, it's all wait and see. Wait and see in terms of uh, Murray. Uh, obviously, I think you make you made some good points here, and I, I think just to add. Uh, Asian swing is important, but at the same time, uh, it's going to be more imperative how many matches he gets there. Of course, even if he loses the first round, he's going to be practicing with, you know, the guys at the level, and that's what he wanted to do. That's why I think another reason I remember he wanted to join the tour, even for doubles, that he wanted to be around players and not waiting for the occasional pro who's in the city to come and hit with him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, four back-to-back weeks, I think, uh, let's see how many matches he gets there. And, and you're absolutely right. Even uh, Davis Cup, I, I read something that uh, now even he's going to be playing the Davis Cup, and then there's an ATP Cup coming. So that's kind yeah. of... Uh, a uh, lot of team competitions back to back. No, don't forget this, Akib, is that you know he's entered into these events. He wants to play these tournaments, but there's no guarantee he's going to play. I mean, he's this is I think the most optimistic thing for him is to play all these tournaments, and we all hope he does because having Murray on the tour, I mean, he's just such a great player, such a great character. Um, we want to have him as long as we can. So um, we fingers crossed, fingers crossed that it all goes well in terms of his his body and um, you know he's able to keep going through. 2020. No, absolutely. Another story to to you know to look forward to, even though Murray you know didn't retire or didn't come back in the same magnitude as of Kim's. So I know you had a heavy summer coverage into the U.S. Open. So were there any stories that kind of made sense, like the players who were doing well, maybe in San Jose or uh, Montreal, uh, coming into New York? Uh, are there? If you look back, were there you know some some good indications what may happen, at least in the first week of the major, because uh, at least on the men's side, Rafa Nadal was one of the big favorites. But would you want to tie in some of the success stories leading into the pre, uh, you know, the weeks leading up to the Open? Well, the thing is, um, we can start off by saying the obvious, which is the players who won the Rogers Cup on the men's and the women's side, Rafa and Bianca, go on to win the U.S. Open. Now, as you're saying, it was it was a great summer in terms of covering different stuff. Uh, I was doing Toronto, uh, the Rogers Cup. That was the comeback for Serena. Um, and I got to say that we were very impressed with Serena, the way that she was moving, her fitness. I, I noticed particularly when she was in the corners, you know, digging out balls on both the forehand and backhand side. She wasn't bailing out early to try to b- hit a big shot in those situations because she felt that she can get herself back into the rally. She was trusting her body. And I felt that was um, a great sign. There was also one particular point which stood out for me watching Serena play in Toronto was that she was kind of being ragged around around the, um, the entire court. I can't remember who the opponent was, but it was, it was an early round match. And then 
Her opponent tried to end with a drop shot, and it was a pretty good drop shot, but Serena got there, put the ball away, and let out this loud roar. She also kind of looked at her box. Her box was smiling. Just to, It was kind of an expression which said, wow, I mean, that was one heck of movement to kind of win that point. So Serena performing there, I think that caught my eye. Bianca's run there, one comeback after another uh, to win in her, not only in her home country, but win in her hometown. I mean, that was special, but... And we just talk more about the WTA for a second. Um, you know, these stories, players who may not necessarily win Grand Slams, uh, they just turn out to be great, story, great stories because they do other stuff. So I'm, I'm thinking San Jose, a player who, you know, winning that title in, in Jung Sai Sai from, from China, who's a, a lovely little player to watch. He's got that, that great chip slice backhand, can play at the net, not the tallest of players, but the way that she dismantled some very, very big hitters in San Jose was, was very impressive, including... Uh, uh, including Arena Sabalenka in, in one of those matches um, in the final, obviously. So that was uh, nice for her to get that done. Madison Keys coming into Cincinnati had been a bit of a kind of a hard season for Maddie uh, in terms of results. So nice to see her uh, do very, very well in Cincinnati. And then obviously, I, you know, losing to Svitolina is no shame for her to, to do that at the U.S. Open. Um, but it was nice to see a player of her caliber get that big one because, um, you know, she does have that in her. On the men's side, Rafa Medvedev, Medvedev, I mean, you know, the summer that he had reminded me of the summer that Delpo had. It wasn't in 2009, it was in 2008. That was the one where he made all those finals, racked up that massive winning streak, ended up playing a pretty darn good match against Murray at the U.S. Open 2008. He would go on to lose that in four sets. But his his kind of summer Medvedev's reminded me of what Delpo did all those years ago. And I, I got to add one more thing. It may be nothing, Sakib. But, you know, when we were thinking about Djokovic and he's talking about the, the shoulder injury, he said he'd been carrying it for a while. I don't know. I mean, was that a factor at Wimbledon? Uh, you know, would that explain some of his his demeanor on the court? Would it explain some of the backhands that he was missing in the final against against Federer? Um, I, I'm just throwing it out there because I, I think, you know, when we saw what happened to him in New York and him saying that he had that for a while, you wonder then just how long he did have that for. Yeah, I think that's the thing with all these top players. You actually did, Ravi, covered quite a lot there. Uh, but I think just staying with what Novak uh, said, sometimes these top players don't want to give too much away after a loss. And same thing with Federer, I think, when he lost to Anderson. He talked about maybe a hand injury later in the year. So a lot of times I think there's a trend that uh, they are... I mean, you cover sport professionally. I've only been around the locker rooms maybe five times in my life. But I think that still remains the hardest moment when you come from a tough loss and whatever you say in that room, and then you are you're obviously having mixed emotions when you're a top top player. You don't want to lose, and if uh, injury has a part to play, but yeah, definitely, uh, I think there's more more to come on this. Uh, hopefully, yep. his, his shoulder is not going to be a factor, you know, for the remainder of the season. But we'll we'll definitely find more. So I think that's that, and, and I think that's a good point you mentioned, you know, that fine line for any athlete when they come off the court and you can see that they're, in, they're injured is, is, you know, what do they, what do they then say? I, I, th I think, for example, Roger handled it great after the uh, Dimitrov loss at the U.S. Open. I mean, in that case, and also in, in, the, in the case of Djokovic, we know, fans know watching, and I think fans have to be in neutral mode here. I mean, if you're for example, pro Federer, not necessarily a Djokovic fan. You you can't say, oh, you know, well, Djokovic, he he could have kept on playing, and only that that player is going to know, only that athlete is going to know. And he was taking on Vavrinka, who we know can really, really, really push him and and test him. But I, I like the way that you know that, what Roger said after the match, and he didn't overplay it. it. It was what it was, and then he just went on with it. I mean, he he did talk about it a little bit, but then he said, you know, you credit the opponent for for getting the win. So um, it it is a very very fine line. You know, you don't want to blame too much the injury because you don't want to take away from your opponent but at the same time watching the match we know it's a factor so you do have to touch on it no and secondly like even you know i as i try to make my transition at least for the podcast purpose i leave my fan hat on the side i mean i yeah. remain extremely you know you know with my fandom at times but but you, you <laughs> just no you, you just said it you, you cannot compare everything is not apples and apples even if two players are having injuries, the extent of the injury, the pain they're having, nobody knows. So yep. a lot of times I think uh, fan bases bring this up. And I'll even share my example. A uh, sure. long, long time ago, I mean, I was a Becker fan. That's the reason I was in tennis. I remember clearly, I'm such a tennis nerd, like I was reading uh, his interview 
Back in the day, we relied so much on internet and newspapers. He lost a clay match in Hamburg, and he said he was injured, and this year he was excited to play the French, and last few years he hadn't played the French. And guess what? He didn't play the French, and then two months later at Wimbledon, he retired after losing to Sampras. So was he being honest? I mean, again, it's a very small story, but he probably felt in that moment, and when he played Pete at Wimbledon, we all knew, he said, look, you know, I'm second best. I think this is the time. It was a very spontaneous move. So whatever yeah. happens in front of the press, I think we sometimes have to admit the player is being honest at that moment with what the circumstances are. And then they, they, and historically, all these, even big three, they do drop in about an injury a little later because they think it's the right thing to do to not talk about it at the moment. So I think... And, and, it's also, and again, it's also down to us to assess. So you look at, you look at Federer and Dimitrov and their past record, their, you know, the head-to-heads, and Roger has really bossed their, their head-to-heads. Yeah. So, you know, Dimitrov came out on, on top. Was the injury a factor uh, for Federer? Of course. Of course, it was a big factor. We have to say that. So, um, but, you know, the player has to beat him, and I thought Dimitrov held his composure in that situation because, he'd, you know, he never really had success against Federer, playing the largest tennis stadium in the world regularly used, still to come out and win that match with the crowd against him. Um, that was impressive. So, you know, you can give credit to, to Dimitrov as well. It's, it's not only about the injury. Yes, it was a considerable factor, but there's, there's a player on the other side of the net as well. No, absolutely. So let me ask you a little dig deeper in that match. So question A is here. When did you sense, if you were not aware of the Federer injury, that there's something wrong uh, with his game? And then, uh, secondly, let's dwell more on Dimitrov, because like you said, uh, he has such a losing record, and Dimitrov was on such a losing streak. His career is in kind of doldrums for quite some time. So even if he did not know Roger was slightly compromised, he still had a match to win, and he's had made a career of losing in winning situations. So talk about those two. One, when did you sense Roger may have a niggle, and secondly, even if he had a niggle, at what point did it start playing in Dimitrov's head? Well, I think that, um, you know, the one thing, or when I kind of thought it was there was something going on, maybe in the fourth set in that match, um, you know, Roger having the lead, uh, you know, when he comes out and, and it starts pretty well, as he did in that match, you're not really thinking of anything. But when he started to really... Miss some forehands um, and missing them by some distance, missing shots that he normally wouldn't miss. Um, I think that's when I started to think, okay, was is there something going on here? Um, it was kind of like last year. Last year when he when he lost to Milman, I was doing that match um, on radio, and I, I I thought at the time I speculated was there an injury at that time for Feder. Turns out it wasn't the case, but it was just the conditions, you know, so so steamy, so humid. Uh, in Arthur Ashe, that that's what got to him. Uh, in this particular case, it was the injury. So I, I kind of thought in the in the fourth set something may have been happening, but I'd been wrong before. Uh, however, when he took the medical timeout, and we know how extremely rare it is for Roger to take a medical timeout, that uh, something was up. Um, and then the start of the fifth set, uh, getting broken at such an early stage was um, – was obviously not the start that he would have wanted, and he's dealing with something. Having said that, there was a pretty important point right at the start, the fifth set. I, I believe it was a 30-all, Federer hitting a serve, which caught the line. It was called wide, um, challenged. The challenge showed the ball was good. It did touch the line. Had the ball been called good in the first place, had the right call been made in the first place, he would have had um, a pretty comfortable uh, put away at the net. So it would have been 40-30. If he goes on to hold, who knows? The dynamic may have changed. That's a small slice of luck that Dimitrov benefited from as well. Uh, so that's when I noticed it. And in terms of Dimitrov, you're talking about where his ranking is now. And you know, speaking of injuries, I mean, he had that big shoulder problem this year. So, I mean, he's had to deal with that for most of 2019. Um, and he's he's a well-liked guy. He's, his peers, his fellow players really do like him in the locker room. Um, you know, they speak always speak very highly of uh, Dimitrov. His run going into the U.S. Open, he'd been one and seven. That's not that's not on par with what he can do. I mean, do I think sometimes in his career that he's been um, overhyped? Maybe, yeah, maybe that's the case. But to be where he was in the ranking, number seventy-eight in the world, losing seven of eight, no, that's that's not an indication of where he should be given his talent um, and given him what he can do on the court. So nice to see him now. He's you know he's he's well back inside the top thirty. Um, and in, in these situations, you always need. You know, a bit of luck talking about that, the incident, the, the, the ball hitting the line from Federer, but also throughout the tournament. He got a bit of luck. Don't forget Borna Chorch, uh, second-round opponent, um, had to, you know, give him a walkover. 
his drive to getting to Federer, I think, was you know was was pretty kind to him. I think we can say that. So um, things went for him, but he took advantage of it when 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 things came his way. Um, and that first set against Medvedev was was the huge turning point for me. Um, had he won that first set, who knows what would have happened? But that was one of these runs for Medvedev where, you know, on, on the way to the final, he was winning all the the big points, the key points. Oh, definitely, and we need to talk a little more about Medvedev. But before we talk about the Russian, let's talk about Matteo Berrettini. I mean, this is a guy who also, you know, showed up at the U.S. Open, uh, exceeded expectations. Uh, talk about his run and uh, how, and even the Grand Canvas. Have you followed his career graph so far, and how surprised or how, you know, what were your reactions of seeing this run in New York from the well, Italian? What, what I've noted about Berrettini in his career is what many have noted, the fact that he's had a, well, he has a very big serve, he has a very big forehand, and he's had success on different surfaces. It's not only the clay, which he likes to climb, but he's had success on every surface. Uh, and the one thing that I really, really like about Berrettini and, and what his coach has done, uh, Vincenzo Santo Padre, if you read his transcripts at the U.S. Open, they made a conscious decision a few years ago to say, you know what? Pardon me, even though we know your favorite surface is playing on, on clay, not unusual for an Italian player, we're going to spend a chunk of time playing futures on hard courts. We're going to get away from the clay. And the coach said he did that because he was thinking ahead, thinking years down the road, this is going to benefit your game. And boy, huge, huge credit to the coach for doing that, number one. Huge credit for the player for saying Yes, I'm going to agree with you, and we're going to do this together. So that, for me, was just a humongous thing when I read that. Props to to Berrettini and his coach. Number two, another thing that I found interesting was that you know we know about the slice that he has. It's it's a pretty darn good slice, and I threw out there the fact that it'd be nice to see Barty and Berrettini exchanging slices um, on a tennis court. That'd be nice. But that happened because of an injury. He had a wrist issue at one stage. He couldn't drive through the backhand. So he said for a period of, I believe it was – Three months, all he was doing really was hitting slices. So it was a negative, the injury that turned into a positive. Um, when you factor in everything that he has in his game, the big serve, the big forehand, the variety on the backhand, I just love his mentality. I mean, he's everybody's different on the court. Um, you know, we know Fabio Fanini, his fellow Italian, is a bit uh, a bit more expressive, if that's the way we want to use it, um, showing his emotion on the court. Berrettini, very, very level-headed. Um, and I think that served him well in, in a couple of matches that he played um, in that great run to getting to the uh, semifinals. So I think a, a lot to really be excited about Berrettini, and he's pushing for a spot in London. He's just just on the outside looking in, and for him, wow, what a boost it'd be to, to make the, the top eight. Absolutely. I mean, uh, he's one of the guys who's uh, in the next gen or the younger category who's made quite a name for himself, and he's done quite well for different surfaces which does bode well for the tour as, you know, we do look for more of these younger players to join the conversation. Uh, yeah. There's a very uh, talked about video cast by Eurosport where Lendl appeared with uh, Becker, Mack and Villander and he said something that stayed with me. I mean, there are a lot of good points. I don't know if you get a chance to watch it, but Lendl said something. Uh, the peak age of a top professional ATP player has increased from his playing days to now. It's in the mid, oh, sorry, early 30s, 32, 33. Back in the day, they would peak at 27. So, and then uh, he was just using that argument to give the likes of Sasha Zverev and all the younger guys more of a chance because we keep looking for them to turn the page now because Zverev has been there for so many years now. But he said, just give them a chance because uh, they will come good and there's still a few more years before they hit yeah. their stride. And well, let, me think, ask you, uh, let me ask you this. I mean, I want to ask you this. Um, so what did you make of Azverev's run, and what did you make of his his Grand Slam season? Is there is there a time next year at the back end of this year if he doesn't, let's say he doesn't make more than one Grand Slam quarterfinal next year, is that a time that we all start to think differently about Zverev and his potential? I mean, we've talked at least I don't know how many, uh, we've talked a lot about Zverev in our podcast, and now as the year has wrapped up in terms of the majors, uh, I don't have a definitive answer, but I do know that there was more than tennis reasons that was going on in his circle and for a, for a young guy. Uh, what I know clearly is that Sasha really, really wants to be a tennis player. He wants this badly. And yeah. uh, and that's the reason, you know, the camp let go of a Lendl because Lendl said, you know, my philosophy wasn't allowed to fully work on tennis with Team Zvera because he had some distractions. And 
I think that, that can take its toll, but it's clear uh, what I hear from all the tennis pundits and experts that Zverev does give a lot of ground on the baseline. He has weapons to be an aggressive player. He's great built at 6'6", but he chooses to be a grinder. And that's, yeah. a, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm no technical expert, but to answer your question, look, he was winning these matches. I mean, uh, the, the manner he's losing these matches is someone who's totally lost confidence in his ability. Yeah. He gets yeah. into these complicated matches. It's different than the matches he was losing when he was favored, say, like in 2018. Uh, I still have faith. I think he will be in the conversation. And I suppose writing him off. Uh, yeah, I think if he doesn't do well the entire year, then maybe we should just give him a break and maybe we should just put him in maybe the second tier. And then eventually, I think he'll find his way. That That's what yeah, I'm meaning. But yeah. Uh, yeah and, I think I, and one more point. I think the rise of Medvedev and maybe and this year the rise of Sitsipas, maybe the... In the tennis circles, finally the pressure will be off from him because there are more names to talk about, and that just may give him, uh, you know, with the off season combined, may give him the right uh, frame of mind to just figure out a few things. Uh, once he, yeah. you know, doesn't squander those leads, because you know, in a Sasha's rare match, even the first set, there's guaranteed, you know, five set are going on right now. Once he can figure out these things, I think he's still, I think, he's still the leader of the pack. I mean, I know. He's kind of not the flavor of the week. It's all about Felix and Sitsipas and Medvedev. But I still yeah. think he's the leader of the pack in the age. And he did all those great things. He won those best of three matches against Novak and Roger and won those tournaments, won the London Masters. So he's done yeah. more than these guys. It's just best of five has been a different animal. And I'm going to still keep him in the mix still. Uh, like you said, yeah, one more year is a good good benchmark. I think um, I, I would agree. I think um, I, I wouldn't no way giving up on him and I agree that there are big things to come I don't necessarily think that he's at the front of the pack now in terms of the of the next gen but I do think as you're touching on so much going on with this season you know um you know his dad apparently wasn't you know wasn't feeling well for time some other personal issues for him you know issues with his his former agent so there was a lot going on he also talked about in Melbourne you know we we're sitting in the, in the press room after his defeat there then he was talking you know he just another thing to get used to because it was such a deep off season for him because he won in London didn't have as much time to prepare for the for the new season, so that was a new dynamic, and I think there's still still a lot of good to come for um from Zverev. Yeah, and I think one guy who just doesn't get talked about, uh, I mean, in this summer, is Dominic Team. I think given his uh, stellar run last year in New York, I mean, whatever illness he had with the flu or a virus, I think that was just so untimely because I think this is his second best major after Roland Garros. The conditions play he's as fit as they come. So this is the kind of guy, I think, who missed out on a small window. Of course, he's still 26. He will have many more runs in New York. Uh, I believed he was the one guy outside of the big three. Of course, I didn't see the rise of Daniel Medvedev to this extent. And I'll be the first one to admit, I thought him and Hachina were the two players who could play in New York just because how the surface is slightly high bouncing gives them more time to whip the ball. Uh, I think uh, it was a little, you know, the... The Lady Luck dealt him a hard blow, the young Austrian, I think. This is, this is a tournament where I expected him to make a run, but I guess sometimes health does get in the way. Yeah, he's... Um, and and do, we, do we reflect on all the tennis that he's had in the past? Is, is that something that plays into these things? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's the case, but uh, two times this year at majors, his body has unfortunately let him down. It happened uh, at the Australian Open, and it happened at the U.S. Open. Uh, and then at Wimbledon, obviously, he's coming off the back of that French Open final. Tough, but then he also takes on a guy who knows how to play on the grass and Sam Querrey very early, straight away, and he loses that. So um, really unfortunate for team. Uh, and, you know, as much as, again, we, we, we say we're we're being neutral, I think everybody likes Dominic team. I mean, he just works so hard at his game. Humble guy. Great guy. Uh, again, his peers love him. So um, we're wishing and hoping him the best best of health in, in 2020. Mm, and one more guy, again, uh, not intended to bring him in the conversation, but always fun. What do you make of the summer of Nick Kyrgios? I mean, you know, there were glimpses of brilliance in Washington and then uh, talking the talk that he wants you more discipline. Um, had a couple of matches in New York, but then a very, I don't want to say flat performance, but definitely... Uh, flat performance of third set against Andre Rublev after losing the two tie breaks. Uh, you think, uh, again, very, it's more like a question just between two observers because well, we don't know he hasn't said anything, but this yeah. run of Medvedev, you think that inspires Nick? I know he's wired a little differently, but. I mean, the thing is, you know, when we when we try to, to anticipate, we, we try to get into the headspace of, of Kyrgios. I mean, that's, uh, I think, an, an impossible thing to do. 
Um, we don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned it straight away when you're talking about Kyrgios and the glimpses, glimpses, you know, the, the brilliance we saw in Washington. We, we've seen that now the last three, four years. There have been glimpses here and there. Not only Washington, it was it was Acapulco. But, but the trend has been coming off the back of winning those titles and in the past winning big events. Um, you know, he's he's fallen but flat. He's found he's found it hard to pick himself up after that and really keep on going. He's also finding it hard to, to stay away from home for such a long time. So um, it's it, it just for, for me, the same old, you know, the same old, same old. Um, there are things that, that happen in a curious match that, again, you know, leave you kind of, wow, shaking your head and, and, and gasping both, you know, with some of his shot making and the way he's able to finish off opponents, hit these crazy shots. But then the other side, some of the, the negative stuff, he does on the court. So, you know, we're still waiting to see now. Is there any action going to be taken? Any further action from, from what he said? You know, use the word corrupt when he was talking with the, about the ATP. So, um, you know, it's Nick has been has been Nick. I mean, the, the, the ultimate the ultimate turnaround, I think what everybody's hoping for is that, you know, some something happens and everything hits him and he he turns into a player who is just completely, completely focused doing the things that other players do, spending the amount of time on his body that he needs to, amount of time practicing that he needs to fully focus. But um, we don't know if that's going to happen. Um, and I just hope, you just hope when, you know, when he plays a match and he continues to play on the tour that, that nothing crazy bad happens in, in a curious match. I mean, I'm talking about even worse than what's, what's happened on the court now. So um, we wait and see. Again, it's uh, it's with Kyrgios, we, you hope, you just hope, you know, you hope for the best, but, you know, we don't know. No, I think well said. Yeah. And it's still, I think, despite all the uh, distractions, I still think tennis should be the focus even for the conversation, but Nick doesn't help himself a lot because other things do creep in besides the tennis. So let's, yeah. uh, uh, I know you have a, a place to be, but uh, let's wrap this conversation up uh, looking like at... Don't worry about it. I'll send the text. And I, uh, for those who don't know, I have to <laughs> playing a match, but we we put that off. It's okay. Okay. Uh, so I was just looking you now with the Asian swing coming in and uh, on the ATP rankings. If you want to even pull your phone and just see from Batista go to rank seven, uh, there's a, uh, there's a big list of players below that. And you know, like you said, Matteo Berrettini and uh, David Goffin is there. Sasha Zverev is there. Uh, again, just to keep this podcast a little fun exercise. Who do you think is going to make London? Of course, you know, there are like seven, eight tournaments to go. But who, who are you, uh, you know, banking on to make a push? Because I think the first five, six have clear lead. Uh, unless someone wins a 1,000, a couple of 500s, I think even Sitsipas is kind of safe. He has 3,100 points. So just walk us through that if uh, uh, you want to look at who's, who might be a player who can just get in London. Berrettini, you already mentioned, is one. He's just 20 points out right now if the tournament were to start today. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating race. You mentioned the fact that uh, Sitsipas looking like he's he's pretty much in, um, and I would agree with that. He's got thirty one sixty, so he's got a nice cushion cushion on RBA around, around eight hundred points. But let's let's throw this out there also, just at the top, um, Rafa is is Rafa going to play? Uh, how much he's going to is he going to play in the fall? Novak, he's injury. Uh, how much is he going to play? Um, Roger, I think Roger's injury is not something that um, that's going to linger. He talked about it in his press conference. It's, it's an injury he's had in the past and usually gets better within within a few days. So, okay, hopefully he's going to be there. But let's assume everybody's in in terms of the top eight. RBA, I mean, I, I, I love the season he's had because, I mean, just to get as far as he did in the Australian Open, beating the players that he did was was a fantastic run. And then to, to back it up and do so at Wimbledon, and make the semifinals where he played a competitive match. Uh, you love this guy's his tenaciousness, his grit. Uh, he's also got a game. I mean, he's not just a grinder. He's got a lovely two-handed backhand, can really power through the forehand. Um, and I think, um, you know, maybe losing earlier than expected for him at the U.S. Open, perhaps that just that little bit of, of extra rest could be the push he needs to go on and make London. Uh, Nishikori is just behind him. He's a veteran. Uh, he knows what it takes to get to to London. Um, he can also play pretty well indoors and the indoor season is coming up. And then I think you think that would fall in the Asian swing. You think that would, that would help Berrettini, you know, with that massive, massive serve playing indoors. I mean, that could be a factor. Zverev, number 10. Um, I see that he's, you know, he's not too far behind number eight. Nishikori is only 60 points behind, but you know, when you assess London and you, you think of who should be in the top eight, I know the numbers don't lie, 
throughout the entire season. But just maybe it's a personal preference, the fact that I like seeing players who've done well um, at the slams be, in, be at the year-end championships because obviously the Grand Slams are the biggest tournaments. And going deep, I think, gives us an indication of you know the type of season they had. So I mentioned RBA doing well at Australia, doing well um, at Wimbledon making the semifinals. Berrettini without running, uh, getting to the semifinals. Zverev, you know, hasn't really you know done it this season. Uh, at the Grand Slams, um, so just a quarter at Roland Garros. That's all he has, I think. Yeah, yeah, the quarter, the quarter there where he where he battled to the, to the quarterfinals once again. So it's it's it really is all to play for. I mean, I look at uh, the number eight spot, Nishikori, twenty one eighty, and then you have Stan, who's number fifteen. He's at sixteen seventy. So that's only around five hundred points behind. There's a lot of players who are still in the mix. Felix is around hundred points behind. Uh, great consistent season at, at ATP level. Hasn't really um, hit the heights yet at the Grand Slams. He's still a young player. Had to miss one Grand Slam also uh, because of his body. So um, a lot of names in the mix. You know, Pella, for example, he's a number 18. Hachanov, somebody you mentioned. Pear. Pear is number 20. Uh, so, um, hey, we we just see how the, the Asian swing unfolds. I think that's going to tell us a lot. When the Asian swing comes to an end, I think it'll be it'll give us more of an indication in, in terms of who's going to be in London. But I'd love to see somebody like Berrettini, just personal, uh, the fact that he played so well at the U.S. Open, uh, a new face, a new face to bring to the mix. I think it'd be nice and exciting to see him. Uh, the Asian swing is also going to be very important for Pass because after that match against Vavrinka at the French Open, he struggled. He struggled. So he's had more time off to kind of get ready for this Asian swing. Um, hopefully for his sake, he's going to be able to, you know, give us that one last push in 2019 after the season began with a bang for him at uh, in Melbourne. It's funny you said about Sitsipas because I've uh, presented the stat among our tennis and accent team. And uh, uh, it wasn't dismissed, but uh, everybody said he's young. And uh, I was just pointing out the fact since losing to Vavrinka. I think he's what six and seven or five and six in his last matches, last eleven yep. matches. So this, this, this clearly, you know, in my mind, there's a connect. But yeah, but he's too young. Yeah. He just had, I think, a very good weekend for Davis Cup. So I think he's uh, maybe he's charged up and then needed some time away. He's, I think, uh, he's checked out of the social media. I guess uh, he's taking a hiatus from there. So that can probably yep. mean good. Uh, because uh, I was talking to Craig Boynt in a podcast that hasn't been released, and he also said the same thing. He's coaching Hubie Hercas. Um, he said, you know, the other generation didn't have the distraction of social media, and sometimes you don't realize how much that takes away from the professional output of a player. Uh, maybe for some, they can block it out. Maybe for some, this is, you know, this is a whole different exercise. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because... Um, it can be a bit of a distraction. Um, also, when you lose a match, uh, players have often talked about how how critical people can be on social media. On the flip side, uh, stuff like Twitter and Instagram can let us in on the personalities and the, the characters these guys are. And that, in turn, um, can can catch the eye of sponsors and can, can lead to more sponsors for these players. So it is kind of a double-edged sword. It's all about managing it. And also having that perspective and, and not trying to, I think um, – be too distracted and also not trying to be too downtrodden and affected when you do get these um, critics and, you know, these comments online. And, and I, I know that can be extremely, extremely harsh, easier said than done, but um, to, to try and kind of balance things. Hmm. And uh, any, any breakout players that you look for the fall season on the women's side? I know the women's side has been more diverse in terms of who wins on a week in week out uh, basis. And uh, there have been, you know, a lot of depth and a lot of uh, competition while the men have been top heavy. So are there any names that you want to follow in your coverage for the remainder of the season on the WTA side that who may surprise? If, if I if I if I bring to you the number of names I think to follow, I think the podcast <laughs> wouldn't because I've I've been lucky enough to, to cover a lot of the tournaments and the depth in the women's game now is is better than it than it ever has been. I mean, there may have been a time, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, maybe more recently, where you, where you look at a draw and you think, okay, you know, these these matches stand out in the early rounds or in the first round. Now it's a case of you look at a draw, and you think, okay, which which first round matches don't stand out because because the, the quality is so darn good. I mean, I don't know if you've been catching any of the coverage this week in in Zhangzhou, but I mean, 
the match yesterday between Sabalenka and Martic, unbelievably crazy good. I mean, you had Martic with her all-court game, the variety, the drop shots, the power of Sabalenka, who can also mix things up. Just It's just super, super stuff to watch. I mean, uh, early rounds, you're getting these these players who've been in Grand Slam quarterfinals facing off. I mean, there are a whole list of young, young players. If we're just talking about young players, uh, players who have been on the tour a couple of years um, Sophia Cannon. I mean, this this player is an absolute battler who's able to take the ball early, uh, move the other player around, plays with such, such a grit. Uh, Diana Yastremska from Ukraine, who, I mean, her racket head speed is off the charts. Phenomenal. When she hits that forehand is, I mean, can really, really go through the court. Um, those are a couple of names. I'm waiting for Marketa von Druseva. Unfortunately, after her run at the French Open, making the finals, had a wrist problem. Has been back since that time. Um, she's another of the very, very younger players. Amanda Anastasimova, really sad news what happened uh, to her dad and had to miss the U.S. Open. But what it, you know, what she did at the at the French Open. I think Maria Sakkari for me. I don't like making predictions because you know we know how off they can go, and it's very easy to to, to say when a player does well at one big tournament. Oh, this player is going to win a Grand Slam. This player is going to be top ten. It's not fair to the player either. Having said that. <laughs> Maria Sakari, for me, wow, this player could be something extremely special. She's such a terrific mover. Heavy, heavy forehand. Her serve, around 120, if not more. And she's had another good year. She's had another good year. She's built on last season. She's a very, very exciting player to watch. So, I mean, those are just some of the players to, to keep an eye on. Just, just so many. Uh, another player that I would like to see... Um, it's been kind of sad to see her results this season. Derek Kasatkin, who brings so much to the court, to court, what she can do with the ball, hitting with so much spin, um, a little bit atypical for some of the players, but it's been a bit of a tough season for her. I'd love to see her kind of really do well in the Asian swing um, because she is such a gifted player. Somebody else who hits with spin, who's making her breakthrough this season, Iga Sviatek, the pole. Wow. This, this player has got a lot of game. Karolina Mukova. I mean, I can just keep on going. There's just so many... Which you know you when a match is on, you you're glued to it because of what you know these players can do. No, I think uh, quite well covered there, and Kasakina is uh, one of those players who eventually will turn it around because she's too good not to. Again, you know, uh, so again a fascinating watch, like you said, with so many names. But I would like to add something. I was uh, in Toronto for like uh, the Rogers Cup for a couple of days, and I got to see Petra Modic lose from courtside, but the kind of uh, the ball she's hitting, again, I was very impressed. And then I look at her ranking. She's someone who's been a perennial round of 16, round of 32 player at the majors. And she's done well on the tour outside of it. But I, I don't usually make predictions, especially using this forum. But I think she's one player to watch out for. I think she's she's going to be close to top 10, I think, uh, early next year. That's, that's what I'm looking at because... The ball she was hitting in, in Toronto, even in her loss, I walked away very impressed. It was something very different than I saw some other players hitting. The ball had a lot of bounce, a lot of margin. Uh, maybe I haven't watched other players as closely, but I think for Petra Martic, I think, yeah, that's uh, that's one player I'm, I'm I'm banking on to make to make a move that's uh, closer to the top 10 of the rankings. I think, I think you know, one thing to, to mention is you're talking about margin. That's a very good point. Uh, I've done a lot of her matches this season. She does play with a good margin, hits with a fair amount of spin on the forehand side. The two-handed backhand has really, really improved. Uh, she's had a couple of injuries in the past, talking about the back, talking about the wrist that has slowed her down. Health issues this season also where she was feeling unwell. And then her coach, Sandra Zanushka, who's done an amazing job. I mean, she's an excellent coach. You know, she said, let's try apple cider vinegar. That helped her a lot. It turned her season around. And another thing, just the last thing about Petra Martic, we know that she's, you know, one of the drop shot artists on the tour. And the thing about her drop shot and the, her ability to hit the drop shot, she can hit the drop shot when it's shoulder height. She can hit the drop shot when it's almost at her at her feet. I mean, that tells you that the talent that this player has. I, I just love watching her. Yeah, and by the time this podcast is released, uh, we'll, uh, the, the, the Pliskova-Martic final that's going to yeah. happen, uh, the result will be in the book, so we're going to talk about that because uh, we don't know the result. But yeah, uh, let's see uh, what her ascendance is and and yeah, what the year holds. Ravi, it was fun talking. Uh, again, I learned quite a few things. The apple cider vinegar, that's definitely you know why these podcasts take place because there's always something <laughs> missing that you know person A doesn't know. 
But yeah, thanks for coming and uh, we should do this uh, more often. I know you cover professional tennis and in a professional capacity than someone like me. But yeah, thanks for give, giving up your time on a Saturday afternoon. Oh, thank you, Nelson. Uh, I enjoy it, number one. Uh, I listen to the podcast. I'm a fan of the podcast. Uh, so based on that, it's also a pleasure to be on. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's again our treat. You know, we get to talk about tennis. We get to watch tennis. And I think that's a privilege. And um, I don't think we take that for granted. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is Saqib welcoming you back on the sec- segment two of this week's podcast. Uh, we already have Ravi Uba as the first act of the show. Now it's the in-house conversation with Matt Semek uh, coming back to the show. And uh, we have Labor Cup coming up this weekend, among other action on the ATP and WTA. So Matt, uh, fire away. You haven't been too quiet regarding uh, how ATP has included Labor Cup. So let's weigh in on uh, that issue in the second segment today. Sure, Sakib. So I need to start out by saying that, you know, I've been a fan of Labor Cup. I mean, when, when I, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a commentator, but when I, so when I say I'm a fan, I'm just, I guess I should pr- perhaps say uh, I have really liked the product. You know, I have a very positive evaluation of Labor Cup after the first two years. And when this event began, I told everyone on Twitter and also in my writings at, uh, well, back then at Patreon and now at uh, TennisAccent.com that, you know, we needed to just let the event speak for itself. We needed to let the players determine how significant this competition was. And so in the first two Labor Cups, what we very clearly saw was players taking the event very seriously. I mean, in the first Labor Cup in Prague, in 2017, the winning team was, you know, exultant and the losing team cried. I mean, Nick Kyrgios cried when he lost that final match to Roger Federer on Sunday. So that's not a light hit and giggle exhibition. I mean, people were quick to say, oh, this is an exhibition, you know, as though it automatically applies and nothing could change or undo that. But these these first two Labor Cups, the, the 2017 Prague 2018 in Chicago, which was almost as good, really on this on the same part, the same basic plane as the first one. I mean, the players took the competition very seriously. You saw a lot of high quality tennis. I mean, the Djokovic Anderson match last year in Chicago was a very high level match, uh, and you had consistent drama throughout the, uh, the the three days, but especially Saturday night and and throughout Sunday. So this has been a really good event. And so I've had nothing but good things to say about Labor Cup the first two years. But that doesn't mean like I have to wave pom-poms for the Labor Cup no matter what. I also have to be open-minded. I also have to be open to new information that comes along. And the new information that is part of the 2019 Labor Cup is two-pronged. First of all, you have the ATP making making the decision to you know, partner with the Labor Cup earlier this year and to retroactively award ATP match wins to all the players. And it's been interesting to note in 2019 that um, Jimmy Connors was officially recognized as having 1,256 wins. But earlier in 2019, that was changed to 1,274 wins. He got 18 more wins upon a revision of the ATP record book. So with that in mind, Roger Federer's four ATP singles wins at Labor Cup the past two years, you know, they've been retroactively added. And so if the ATP had wanted to say, okay, 2019 Labor Cup matches count as ATP wins, that would have been fine. But to retroactively do it, you know, after two years, you know, that didn't strike me the right way and it didn't strike a lot of tennis fans the right way. Um, you know, so that that's one of the things that that, you know, to me as a as a commentator as a neutral observer, takes a little bit of the shine off this particular Labor Cup. And the other part is simply the Nick Kyrgios element. Um, not he, he hasn't yet been denied the ability to play in this Labor Cup, and that just seems like an obvious uh, conflict of interest in tennis, wanting to sell tickets rather than impose necessary discipline on a player. The fact that this is an event in which the ATP has a stake Unlike the previous two Labor Cups, it should make it that much easier, you know, conceptually at least, Sakib, for Kyrgios to be suspended. The fact that he hasn't, you know, that is just another loud statement of tennis's refusal 
uh, to govern itself properly. So I've loved the quality of the Labor Cup the first two years. But uh, for those two reasons I've just laid out, this one is not going to hold the same amount of attractiveness for me. I think those are very valid points. And uh, if you cover the sport objectively, you have to sit on uh, some of these issues and the curious issue. uh, A lot of folks have talked about this and let's see how it unfolds when there actually is a sentence if he's going to be suspended post-Labor Cup. Uh, as far as me, I mean, I don't remember what I said last year about Labor Cup. I know it's, uh, you know, it's something of a, some sort of a different event in uh, tennis to me as a fan and and podcasting capacity still is about the tours, the majors. And uh, this is a galaxy of stars getting together by Federer and God's sake. And I've enjoyed, like you said, uh, the event. And I look forward to the Boston edition, which would be here next year. But uh, for now in Geneva... Uh, I, I'm I'm gonna look. Uh, I'm gonna watch the tennis, but uh, if uh, somehow I don't watch it, it's not something you know I I will miss as a fan. But uh, whenever Federer and Nadal and some of the big names are there, you will you know you will catch a glimpse if you are around you know a TV. And uh, that being said, uh, the promotion around this event is always heavy. Uh, the PR job is I think. Is, is, you know, not uh, tirelessly, but it's, it's, it's geared towards to make this event a uh, legit stop at the ATP. And this year, it's no coincidence that there is a partnership and recognition by the ATP Tour to include Labor Cup and all the reasons you stated uh, by even retroactive, you know, adding uh, match wins for all players. Uh, but yeah, the weekend is here. I'll just focus on, you know, what the weekend uh, waits. And I think the world team, if they end up winning, despite they have Kyrgios, I think that'll be, uh, that won't be a bad thing uh, because they are just like such heavy underdogs. And I think someone said on Twitter the other day, Batista Agut is uh, the reserve uh, for the Team Europe. And every player in Team Europe is ranked higher than, uh, you know, whatever the highest ranked player for uh, Team World is. So I don't know if you want to weigh in a couple of minutes on the actual tennis that awaits us. Is Rafa Nadal healthy? Is Dominic team done uh, with flu-like symptoms? Roger Federer said he's had the back niggle on and off. And uh, Sasha Zverev is, you know, serving double falls in bulk. Fabio Fonini is Fabio, but he also had like an ankle, ankle sprain coming into the U.S. Open. So the only guy who might be really healthy is Steph Tsitsipas, who... Who's, deto- who's de- detoxing, you know, from the social uh, media these days, and uh, this could serve him well, uh, you know, keeping company with the likes of Rafa and Roger. So let's wrap the segment uh, on the actual tennis that's coming our way, Matt. Uh, if you want to comment on uh, how this weekend's going to shape up, well, you know, it was it was noteworthy in uh, past Labor Cups how much uh, Jack Sock, um, you know, got out of the experience, and of course. Sock, what he did in the first Labor Cup, uh, really was, it seemed to be a catapult for him for the end of his 2017 season, you know, when he won Bercy and then uh, made the ATP Finals semifinal round. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see if on the team world side, if a big performance serves as a catalyst, an awakening uh, for a good close to the ATP season in Shanghai and, and Bercy. So that, that's one point of interest. And then, as you mentioned on Europe, you know, so this is Tsitsipas's first go round. So it'll be very interesting to see how he embraces and handles the moment. Uh, and it could be a point of refreshment after his miserable summer hardcourt season. So, so that is certainly a plot point uh, to watch. And I think that this could be um, Alexander Zverev's Labor Cup because he's, you know, he signed with Tony Godsick's teammate. Uh, earlier this year. So he's you know, he's obviously going to be spending plenty of time with Godsick uh, and Federer, at, you know, in this uh, Labor Cup setting. So it might be a place where he plays with a lot more freedom. He doesn't play with more cautiousness because he's removed from a normal tour environment. So that 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 it could be something which gives him pleasure because he hasn't really been having a lot of fun playing tennis. And I've personally felt that, you know, he needs to take a, a siesta He's take a hiatus from from the sport because it's just he's, it's not nourishing anything about him right now. But maybe Labor Cup 
uh, is going to be something different for him. And in terms of uh, in terms of Nadal, I, I, I think Nadal is not going to play more than two matches and probably and one of them doubles. I think that he's going to have a very light schedule after the U.S. Open grind. Um, and I, that that also goes into my analysis that Zverev is going to be um, the, the featured player from Team Europe and also with, you know, T- Dominic Team having uh, his, his recent bout with a virus. So I think Nadal is going to get light work. He worked, he played a lot at the 2017 Labor Cup. And then, of course, you know, he had his knee taped in that Shanghai final in 2017 against Federer. So I think Nadal is going to see a very white, light workload and uh, Zverev and, and the other, uh, the, you know, and also Tsitsipas are going to get more of the the assignments for Team Europe in this tournament. And there's a separate note before closing this uh, segment, Sakib. I just want to note, the, the sport of tennis needs a women's uh, equivalent. We need the Billie Jean King Cup. We need to have that. We should be able to have that. You know, imagine uh, Bianca Andrescu and Serena Williams being on either Team World or Team North America going up against you know, all of the Central and Eastern Europeans, you know, from Russia, Ukraine, Romania, uh, the, the Czech Republic. Gosh, I mean, the, the, the women's tennis is waiting for this same kind of concept to emerge. It would be great theater and, and it would probably be more competitive than the Labor Cup with uh, Europe versus the world. Uh, I mean, you'd have something that could sustain itself uh, for some time. And I mean, you know, when Serena retires, you'd have Sophia Kennan. Other Americans, um, you know, you know, perhaps Coco Goff, although that's looking far down the road. But you'd have some highly marketable players from both the North American continent and the European continent, not to mention other continents, uh, you know, including Asia. Uh, it, it, we need a Billie Jean King Cup. I mean, I presume that if, 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 if a WTA equivalent of the Labor Cup was created, it would be the Billie Jean King Cup. So uh, folks at the WTA uh, need to get on the ball and make this thing happen. Yeah, I think uh, that's something that uh, will be very interesting. But I also would like to add, uh, given the mutual respect and the bonding that Federer and Nadal have shown, you know, throughout their professional careers, which has grown over the last few years, uh, Steph Tsitsipas and uh, Sasha Zverev are not on the best of terms. Again, I don't know if it's hostile, but, you know, they haven't, uh, shied away from use, using, you know, taking jabs at each other in press conferences. So to 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 see them as teammates is going to be fascinating, and how they come along under, you know, the umbrella that is Team Europe, with Bjorn Borg and Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal there, and Thomas Enquist, you know, current veterans and you know the coaching staff. I think that'll be uh, some sort of a talking point that many people on tennis Twitter and many tennis fans in general are looking forward to. I think uh, that should be exciting in itself. Their teammates. For this tournament completely agree so i think on that note matt uh, we have a, a full episode here uh, for the uh, listeners to tune in and whoever listens like matt has been saying please uh, sh- you know share with your friends and also uh, drop in a review and some sort of feedback on how the podcast is received and how you know we can improve and what we are doing good all that stuff is very important to both uh, you know, me and Matt and our team in general at TennisAxon.com. Uh, and and, and Sakib, thanks for mentioning that. I just want to spell it out very clearly that when you take the time to subscribe and rate our show at uh, Apple Podcasts, not iTunes, but Apple Podcasts, and also you can do that at Stitcher if you use Stitcher, and you can also do that at Google Podcasts. When you po- post a rating... Uh, and also offer a review. What that does is it gives us a higher placement on search pages and search results. And the, the higher we are on search results, the the, the more uh, the the better we are displayed on various results pages. You know, it's kind of like search engine optimization, only it's for podcasts. So that is more attractive to potential advertisers. So it doesn't guarantee that we're going to get that long-term sponsor for this podcast that we're looking for, um, but it does certainly increase the odds. So just taking those five minutes or so to subscribe and rate and review at Apple Podcasts or also Stitcher as well 
taking the time to make those reviews, it really makes a tangible difference for us. All right, on that note, uh, we'll be back again with a fresh episode a week from now. Uh, this is Akim and Matt signing off. Thanks for listening.